0: Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, we're only looking at one verse today. We're looking at the Beatitudes. We're looking at this, the Jesus teaching in the Beatitudes about how joy is found and that, that the world looks for happiness, but happiness is based on happenstance, your circumstances. But this issue of joy, and Jesus is talking, and he's saying that he can give you joy in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. I mean, this is his first message to preach. This is really his first message to talk. It's the an announcing of his public ministry. And all of a sudden, he goes through and he says, joy can be found. In some difficult circumstances, that for the believer, the one that has surrendered their life to Christ, that this issue of joy is not dependent on circumstances and situations. you know I, I learned last week i was I was doing the, the proverbial uh, channel surfing. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's just amazing to me that there can be six thousand channels and nothing to watch. And so, you know how you start just flipping channels. I came across this reality TV show that I thought was new. I said it was new last night, and uh, and obviously it's been out for a couple of years. But I I didn't even know it was on TV. It's called The Voice. You ever seen The Voice? And so it's kind of like Idol. See, I didn't even know it'd been out for like two or three years. All I do at home is just read my Bible. And so uh, I'm joking. <laughs> And so I'm flipping channels. And so in case, so we're all up to speed and we all understand this. So the voice is a little bit different. It's different than some of the other singing contests. It's different than Idol in that you've got these judges, right? And the judges, their back is to the contestants and and they got this button. And so the contestants come out and they've never seen the contestants before and they start hearing them sing. And in other words, the contestants start auditioning for them. And then when all of a sudden, when the judges think, that's a voice that I would like, that's someone that I'd like to work with, then they hit the button... Their chair swings around, and for the very first time, they get to see the, the face behind the voice, the, the, the person behind the voice, and so they go through the whole thing, and you know what's interesting is when the con- contestants are auditioning for them, you see that all of a sudden, they get encouraged, or they get excited because they're going into this just hoping one judge will, will hit the button, and a lot of times, two or three will. Now listen, once the judges hit the button and, and the contestant has finished their audition, then they start lobbying the judges start lobbying to they want to work with that person because really and truly it's not just a contest about the the singer or the person that is singing it's really more about the judge it's really more about the judge getting the best talent and the best people around him or her so that that all of a sudden the judge is successful in winning along with the individual so the judge selects them but they have to select the judge and and here's the interesting thing about Jesus' culture and when, when Jesus started his ministry. You see, the rabbis of their day was much like the voice. See, I know it sounds kind of strange, but the rabbis of their day, uh, the teachers of the law, they taught the first book of the Torah. Most of the rabbis had memorized the Torah, and they, they knew it by heart. They were, they were very bright. They had extensive knowledge into the Torah. And so they would take, and do you realize their followers or their disciples would audition for the rabbi to accept them. Because it really, truly wasn't about the disciple as much as it was about the, the teacher or the rabbi. And so these disciples would have to audition for them and and they may already have memorized the Torah. They may have memorized the whole book of of Leviticus. And there was an extensive process because it was really about the, the rabbis being prideful. It was really about their disciples were a reflection of who they were, much like the voice. And sometimes they would ask questions like, well, how many times does the word Yahweh appear in Leviticus? Because they only wanted the brightest they wanted only wanted the most talented because, you see, it reflected about the rap because it was all about them. It was a lot like trying to get into an Ivy League school and you needed a 4.0 and, or you needed a high uh, SAT or SAT scores or, or you needed a lot of volunteer or what or you need recommendations from senators and presidents and whatever to get in. fact is, it's hard to believe but the majority of people in Jesus' culture couldn't even get a rabbi to accept them. Because they only wanted the elite. They only wanted the ones that were the brightest. And, because it was more about the rabbi than it was about the student. And then Jesus comes. And he starts his earthly ministry. And he's a teacher of the law, he's a rabbi in some respects. And he's countercultural. and Jesus says, "Anyone who accepts me will never perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever desires to follow me. Let them take up their cross daily and follow me. See, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp some of the teachings of Jesus because we don't understand the culture we've taken Christianity and I believe that we don't really understand any longer what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Christ many people we don't mind being a follower of Christ a disciple of Christ as long as we define the terms as long as we decide what's right what's wrong what's sin what's not sin but not in their day you see when people would follow a rabbi everything in their life completely changed Fact is, they had a saying in their culture that went something like this. They would say, May the dust of your rabbi cover you. That you followed that teacher, you followed that rabbi so closely that your priorities changed and your value system changed, and the way you approached life, the way you viewed life. Everything changed. Because you're a follower. Of his. I don't know if you caught it, but Saturday morning was because of Whitney Houston, uh, millions upon millions of people went to church Saturday morning and CNN and Fox uh, covered it live without editing it. I'm sitting there listening to the number of times that Jesus was spoken in that service, thinking this is probably setting all kinds of records, the number of times that Jesus was spoken at CNN and Fox and some of the other out- outlets. And, and they started the service out and they had a little bit of a disclaimer and they said this, they said, said, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how successful you are, doesn't matter how powerful and popular you are, doesn't matter how well you can sing and and how well you can act, and all that, because they had some of the world's most influential, talented people in that place. But here's our disclaimer: every one of us needs Jesus. Amen. Doesn't matter who you are, every one of us needs Jesus. One of the one of the guys that got up to speak was just so telling. His name was Kevin Ca- Costner. You may have heard of him. Uh, but he he got up and he talked about his relationship with Whitney Houston and how close they became in, in the bodyguard that he was the one that wanted her. The producers and the company did not want her. They wanted someone else that was more experienced in acting. And he's the one that fought for her. And he says, and we got to know each other, and we spent a lot of time with each other. And he says, I know you're going to think this weird, but Whitney and I have a lot of things in common. And I know you may think that's strange because I'm a boy and she's a girl, and, and I am white and she is black, but he says, I am telling you. We have a lot of things in common. We were both raised in a Baptist church. He said, I was raised... He says, fact is, I have some of my fondest memories of childhood was in church and in a community of believers. I remember when I was four years old when a gold shovel went into the ground and then all of a sudden a building went up to where there was once no building. I remember spending hours in that church with my dad that was committed to that church. And he says... And I always worried as a child and feared that God was calling me to be a preacher. That God wanted me to be a pastor. The problem is I looked at our pastor and I'm not so sure how much he enjoyed it. I'm not so, I'm not so sure how much joy that he had. And it is a sad commentary on believers. It is a sad commentary on the church. That there's this belief out there that if you surrender your life to Christ, because see, we love the evangelicals. We love to talk about salvation. We love to talk about salvation. We love to talk about eternal life. But nobody wants to talk about surrender. Nobody likes to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to surrender your priorities and your values and how you do life to where you surrender it to the place that it changes everything about you. It changes the way you treat your wife. It changes the way you treat your husband. It changes the way you treat your kids. It changes the way that you treat people that you go to church with and you do life with. It changes everything about you. And the world would tell you that, you know what, joy is not found in surrender that for some reason you become a follower of Christ, it is boring, it is not productive, there is no purpose in it, there is is no reason for it, unless you get to this point, when you're about ready to die, or you have died, and then you need him. And you watch this group of people that were honest about Whitney Houston's life, and honest about her struggles, but then also honest about her relationship with Christ. Christ. And they did not grieve like people without any hope. That even in the midst of their mourning, even in the midst of their struggles, and I'm telling you, I've done hundreds of funerals as a pastor, and I've done funerals for people within the community that could not find a pastor or church in town that would do their funeral. I have done funerals for people that were very far away from God, and I can tell you this, there is a difference when you do a funeral for a group of believers than people that are lost. and That's why Solomon said this. Solomon said, It is really, really better to attend a funeral than to attend a party. Because at a party there is drinking and dancing and celebration and it's empty and it's temporal and it's done. But there's something about a funeral that causes you to look to God and causes you to look at your life that can have eternal significance. And Jesus in Matthew chapter five verse four, he makes this statement. He says, "He says, joy can be found. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. Because they grieve like people with no. With, with, they, they they grieve with people with like people with hope. I'll get it out. Because there's a difference about them." And Jesus in this word, well, fact is, mourn and sorrow, there's seven different Greek words. And Jesus uses the most debilitating, the most painful word there is for mourning and sorrow. It's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a child. It's to be in a desperate situation that you have no control over. It wasn't anything of your fault, it just happened. It was to come to the point to where you just just broken and you just don't know if you can get through it. That Jesus said, In me, there is hope. And in me, there is joy. And even though you mourn and even though you grieve, you do not grieve and mourn without hope. The greatest... Listen, let me talk to you parents. Dads and moms, the greatest thing you can do for your children is to live your life in such a way surrendered to him so that when they gather around your casket, they do not ask the question, where is he? Where is she? That they know with confidence that you're with Christ, that they'll see you again. And three things about this issue of mourning that God is pleased in our mourning. The first thing is this, is that God is pleased when we're willing to mourn over the sins of others. That God is pleased when we're willing to mourn and be broken over the sins of others, the choices of others. The church should be different. It should be different than any other place. It should be because it's holy and because it's, and Christ has died for the church. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes and he talks about this issue, about this man that was in church. and He was caught up in, in a horrible sin. It was a horrible immorality and the church knew about it. He was a leader and the church knew about it. And the church like turned their head to it. And the apostle Paul says, I cannot even believe you're ignoring this. I cannot even believe you're not speaking to this. I cannot even believe that you're just accepting this. Even the pagans, even the people without Christ, this is gross to them. This is appalling to them. That the church knows about this and the church ignores it. And I'm telling you, God is pleased. When we are willing that we love each other to the point that we're willing to just mourn over the sin of another. In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes this. He says, brothers, so, so whenever you see that in Scripture, he's writing to believers. He's writing cr- to Christians. And he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, you who are spir- spiritually mature, you should, you should go to them. You should go with the intent to restore them. This word restore had two different uses in in the common Greek language of their day. A fisherman would would use this term that when their nets would be torn and had a hole in them, that the nets were once useful, and no, they're no longer useful, that the fishermen would take and spend time and they would sew the net, they would repair the net so it was useful again for the function. Uh, it was a medical term. that Medical doctors, it, it, it was a term that they would use for the resetting of a bone so that the body could be used again, the arm could be used again. That the, and so you go to them, what? Not with a spirit of judgment, not with a spirit of condemnation, not with a spirit of, of, of gossip and slander. I mean, this is something that is done privately. That you who are spiritual should what? Should go to them and restore them with what kind of spirit? A spirit of gentleness. a spirit of concern for them. That if you continue on this road, that if you continue to make these decisions, that it will not end well for you. To where it's not about you, it's about them. It's not about where you want to help them. And then there's like this warning that when you do that, you need to keep watch over yourselves. Why? Because that could be you. Be careful when you think you stand firm, you will fall. It's what Corinthians says. That's how we can go to someone with humility. See, that's why religious people and the righteous people can never go to someone and restore them. Because they think, I'd never make a decision like that. I'd never. I'd never do something like that. That's beneath me spiritually mature? Remember last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, that we understand that we are completely spiritually destitute and totally dependent on him? There is no judgment in a person like that. Man, how do you handle it in church when we're a community of believers? Every book of the New Testament, except for the Gospels, was written to a people group, a community. How can you restore anyone in church when you don't know them? Is, is it all about you? Is it all about you coming in and finding your seat and getting your place and, and what you, getting what you need from God? How do you handle it when you're in the foyer? And there's that person that catches your eye and you know. They're lonely. They're a first time visitor. And they're obvious, right? You can tell. They don't really know where the worship center is and the children's area and the youth area and where the where the coffee is and all that other stuff. Do you pass them? And head to your seat and to your friends. Because you don't want to be bothered by that. Or that's up to the ushers and the greeters. That's up to the professionals. Do you remember what it was like when you walked in a congregation of a group of people that you did not know? And how awkward you felt? I have a story of a, of a family a couple of years back that came to our church for the very first time. And, and they needed friends. And they, were, they, just, they just needed friends. And and uh, they sat through a worship service and a guy sat next to them and introduced himself to them and after the worship service he just looked at them says hey you guys are new aren't you and they go yeah we're new first weekend he goes um you guys want to get involved in a life group And they go wow we yeah and he says well come to mine it it meets on tuesday nights and I'll come pick you up. If you don't want to go alone, I'll meet you there. I'll make sure I'm early. I'll introduce you to everybody. And we just got a great group and told them about his group. Can you imagine what would happen if we developed that kind of community here where people were able to build relationships, people really cared about each other? They didn't judge each other, gossip. They just want to restore them. That's why it's so important for you to be involved in the ladies ministry the men's ministry or life groups or whatever because I'm telling you the word is fleshed out in a community of believers because guess what we all have blind spots right only the righteous say no blind spots for me Jesus was a different type of rabbi anyone who wants to come to me come He's the only one that humbled him. The rabbis of their day, they did the rejecting. Jesus, he let people reject him. God is pleased when we're willing to mourn over the sin of others, but God is also pleased when we're willing to mourn over our sin. And not just blow it off or excuse it away or say, hey, that's how I was raised and, and uh, that's how my dad was, that's how my family was, that's just me. Where we don't excuse it away, that, that, that we that we're actually mourn over. Us. See, see, Jesus doesn't, listen, Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does expect us to be authentic. He expects us to be real. Listen, let me tell you something. You will never be able to be authentic. That's why religious people cannot be authentic or they cannot be real, because they really and truly don't understand that they have been totally and completely forgiven and accepted by him. Listen, let me tell you something. The religious people or the Pharisees of their day, really what it was about is they were auditioning for God their whole life, hoping that they would do enough good stuff, enough religious acts, and enough things to where finally God would accept them. Kevin Costner said this about Whitney Houston. She, he said it made her great, but it also turned out to be her downfall. That her whole life she wondered, is she pretty enough? Can she sing well enough? Can she act well enough? In the early days, that what drove her to success. But it ended up destroying her because she never quit auditioning. Let me tell you something, joy is never found in auditioning. Joy is never found in trying to audition for someone or for God to get to the point that you feel like he's accepted you. Now let me tell you something, when you're in Christ, you are accepted, not tolerated. He accepts you. You're totally and completely forgiven. You are perfect in Him. You are not living your life with auditioning for Him where His back's turned to you and He's waiting for you to jump through enough religious rituals and hoops and all this other stuff for Him to hit the button. See, the religious people, they think it's about knowledge and they think it's about information, right? I mean, I mean they think they, they equate it to, to a relationship with God. It was knowledge. But listen, we know this, right? You can know a lot about someone, but you you may not know them. I learned a lot about Whitney Houston and watching her funeral, but guess what? I may know a lot of facts about her, but I do not know her. I never knew her. You can read a biography about someone, and you can walk away from reading that book, and you feel like, I know that person, but you don't know that person unless you've met them. And Jesus is talking that joy is found in a relationship with me. See, see religious people, they think the relationship is in knowledge. I mean, that's why you can be around a lot of people and they know a lot of stuff, they know a lot of scripture, they know some doctrinal words that you've never heard of, and then they use the Bible like a, like a bat. And they just judge you and they just beat you with it. The dangerous thing about knowledge is It can give you a false sense that there's a relationship. That was the Pharisees. The difference between a Sadducee and a Pharisee in Scripture is this. A Sadducee was born into that position. He was born into that family. And as a result of their birth, they become a chief priest. They become a priest. Not so with a Pharisee. A Pharisee, it was because of some religious things they did. It was because of some things that they did and in Luke chapter 18 Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector that go to church one day and one walks away changed and the other one walks away the same one walked away with expect or came with expectancy and he walked away with God doing something in his life because the Pharisee believed it's all about knowledge Luke chapter 18 verse 9 Jesus tells this parable, and he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's a religious person. That's a person that does the rules and the regulations, the rites, the rituals, all that stuff. They're, they're, they're living their life auditioning for God, hoping that sometimes, someday they do enough stuff that all of a sudden he accepts them and trusted them in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. I mean, religious people, right? They look down on everybody else. And they treat them with contempt. You see, Pharisees gave their minds to the study of God. But listen, they they never surrendered their hearts. It never changed. It never transferred. It never transformed them that because of my relationship with Christ, because I am a follower of Christ, my values are different, my priorities are different. I treat people around me differently because I've come into this relationship with Him. See, Pharisees thinks it's in the things that you, that you, that you do. That's why Jesus recorded in the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee prays and, and so the Pharisee prays but it's, he's really not praying to God. It's all about himself. It's like, God, you're lucky to have me in the family. And then he gave the list of everything that he's done. Here are all the religious r- rituals that I've done. Here's all the stuff. I mean, he's auditioning for God in his prayer. He, and thank God I'm not like The tax collector, why? Because religious people treat everybody else with contempt. It's like the husband and wife that are having marital problems. And then there's heated discussion. And the husband turns to the wife and says, I don't understand. Everything I do is for you. I've got a great job. I go to work every morning. I, I, I work hard. I, I provide you with a car. I provide you with a nice car. I provide you with a home. We go on vacations. I buy you clothes. I buy you stuff. And then he starts going through the things that he does like, you know what? I'm here. I don't go out with the boys and I don't hang out on the golf course. I don't hang out away from you. I'm, I'm like always here. I mow the yard. I, I do chores around the house. I help out around the house. I do all of those things. You know what? I've never hit you. I've never abused you. I've never cheated on you. Goes through the list right and then he turns to her and says I don't understand just what do you want and she looks at him with tears I just want to know you I just want a relationship with you I just want you to know my hurts and my dreams my issues and my pain I just want you to care about me. So all of your conversation is not about you. If we're not careful in relationships, we'll think that knowledge equals intimacy. You can know a lot about a person. It doesn't mean you know them. And you can know a lot about God. But it doesn't mean you know Him. In their day, there is not one example where someone came in a relationship with Christ and they weren't changed. The tax collector, his prayer, totally different. God, I cannot even look up to heaven. I'm spiritually dependent on you. I just need mercy. I just need forgiveness. And you know what Jesus says? The tax collector went away justified. The tax collector went away changed. You know what that tells me? You can sit through a worship service, and the person next to you can be changed, and you can walk away saying, "Felt nothing." Didn't do anything for me." Because your attitude, because of your position. The last thing is this: is God is pleased when we mourn in desperate situations. God is pleased when we mourn in dis- desperate situations. God is pleased when we, how we walk through desperate situations because that's when Jesus pulls near and pulls close. Situation where Lazarus had, had died and Martha's brother and they had sent for Jesus in, in the book of John, John chapter 11. And, and they told Jesus that he was probably going to die and And Jesus waited for like a couple of days to just show up. And as he's walking up, Martha greets him in the driveway. And like, no need to come now. In John chapter 11, verse 21, the scripture says, So Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, I wonder how many times we have said I know how many times I've said that. Lord, why did you let this happen? Lord, if you had been here. See, there's something about desperate situations that people believe that because I'm going through a desperate situation, God is not here. God is like absent. And Martha is saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, you know what happens? Blame. I'm blaming God. You ever watch someone go through a desperate situation? You know people that walk through a desperate situation with joy? Is that person that doesn't blame. They don't blame God. They don't blame others. They don't walk out of it bitter. They're not angry. They just understand that God is still with them. This is what Jesus is saying. That Jesus is saying that he is pleased when we mourn or we have joy in a desperate situation because we know he is with us and we know he is still in control. This word would be like a desperate situation. The fact is it may be some of the most desperate of all situations when you go through that situation in life and you have no control over it. What's the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, loss of a marriage, a loss of a relationship, a, a, a loss of a career. And you have like no control. You want to know where your spiritual maturity is? How do you walk through a desperate situation? Do you blame him? Do you blame others? Or do you understand blessed are those? See, you will never be comforted when you're blaming others or when you're blaming him. And you understand That it was that situation that brought you closer to Him, because in that desperate situation is when He draws close to you. I'm I'm just telling you, as and I've been to seminary and pastored here since '95. I've learned more about God in desperate situations, but He can be trusted. That he is there. Sad thing. Religious people feel like they're auditioning for him, and they're trying to earn his approval and earn his acceptance. And maybe they could do enough good things so he will accept him. But he, Psalms 139 says... that before the creation of the world, I formed you and I knew you. Before you auditioned for me, before you sang your first note, before you preached your first sermon, before you did your first religious righteous act, before you committed your first sin, I formed you and I knew you. And I hit the button. And now I'm waiting for you to accept me.